Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast-growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm Eric Quanstrom, the CMO at Science. On our podcast today, really exciting episode, we've got Will Aitken. And Will goes into all things video, which makes sense because he's the sales evangelist over at Sales Feed, which is basically owned by Vidyard, where he was formerly or currently content creator and event speaker. Will's been in this game quite a long time. Prior to Vidyard, he was over at Proposify and then um, also an AE over at HR.com. And he walks us through a lot of the tactics and strategies and really best practices of how to do video prospecting right. We literally hit on kind of almost the A to Z of, of mindset, of things that you should be thinking about, things you should avoid. Don't do. And frankly, you cannot listen to this episode and not want to immediately start integrating video into your prospecting methods and take a ton of best practices away. So without further ado, I'm going to get right to it. This is a really fun discussion between Will Aitken, again, the sales evangelist of SalesFeed, and myself. Enjoy. So I'm here with Will Aitken. And, and frankly, Will, you're probably at inflection point of where video meets outreach, maybe as much, if not more, than anyone I know of. That's, a, that's fair to say, I suppose. Um, I'm big on video, Both I work for Vidyard, uh, and I've been a big, heavy user of Vidyard when prospecting in the past, but I also put a lot of videos out there online, uh, a lot of social branding built around the idea of making video my main pillar. So yeah. I love it. For those that have been living under rocks for years, tell us a little bit about Vidyard and, and what it brings to the table and why it's such a, a you know important company mm. in kind of like the SDR or the prospecting space. So it's a Vidyard is probably one of the, the, the main players in the, the video for salespeople specifically space. Um, so it's been pretty, become pretty synonymous with sales videos. Some people even just call it send a vidyard, right? So it's a platform that's used by salespeople to send prospecting videos, but more so we're seeing video being used throughout the sales cycle once the meeting's been booked as well. But yeah, for the most part, people are very, not very much so for the, uh, the outbound video. Yeah. And I, I've used Vid, Vidyard um, extensively in the past myself, and I find it to be super easy to use and super, it's like a content management system. Marketer me comes out, <laughs> you know, where you can, you know, track and have everything associated with that video that as a salesperson you would want, right? Like when was it, this video viewed? Who was it viewed by? Full, you know, kind of like landing pages. And, and it's like video in a box is the best way to describe it. But I'm, I'm just a user. I'm not a uh, <laughs> an evangelist, if you will, for the for the company. It's funny you say evangelist. That's my my title actually. But um, yeah, the um, the platform's really good. And uh, to your point about like notifications and stuff, there's no better feeling than when you send a video to a prospect and you get like 20, 30 views on it. It's like going viral with inside an account, and that's one of the best feelings out there. Feels better than going real viral on TikTok or LinkedIn. I'll tell you. And when it comes to, you know, kind of like outreach and and especially maybe even best practices, I'd love to start there and kind of start to deconstruct. How should people really be thinking about integrating video into any of their sequences or cadences? What are some of the ways in which first let's start with mindset? Why video? 
Well, that's a good question to start off with, a deep one as well. Uh, I think it's the same as why you use any other channel or, or, or format of prospecting. It's, it's one more way and a great way, mind you, to try and reach the prospect with the way they want to be communicated. Video allows you to be really emphatic. Emailing, it's just the words that you write. If you're on the phone, you get the benefit of using tone and in your voice um, and pacing as well. On video, you get body language, you get eye contact. It just gives you a lot more ways to communicate with the prospect while sending them something that they kind of know can't really be automated. So it's superhuman as well. And therefore, it's a great way to stand out. Yeah, I really like that use of the word uh, superhuman. And I also picked up on something you said that was pretty subtle, but actually, in my opinion, really important. Reach out to prospects in the way that they want. So, you know, it's funny, like when, when you're forced to use video, you're really forced to make it all about the person you're talking to, aren't you? Hmm. I mean, some people do fall into the trap when they, when they get on video, they, they think, oh, this is a great opportunity to now show my solution. That, I think that's a big trap that people fall into when they get video. They think, oh, now I can share my screen and show my product. But that's a backward mindset because no one really cares about your product until they know how it impacts them. So you still got to be really customer focused in that reach. Even though you have the ability to now show your product more, that doesn't mean you necessarily should. And like you said, you should really make it about them. Well, and and ultimately, when you're unpacking kind of like for, for the average SDR team that maybe isn't using video, but thinks maybe with a should, that could be a golden rule, right? Like make it all about the prospects that you're talking to each and every time, right? I think that's the, the, the golden rule for any type of outreach, not just video. I think the moment you start talking about yourself and your product and your customers without first identifying a challenge something to do or an observation that you've made about the, 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 the prospect, I think that's, that's selling too early. Um, so as a golden rule in all of my prospecting outreach, whether that be on the phone or my email, sometimes you fall into the trap and you start you know, on a cold call. They're like, oh, what do you do? And you start talking about your solution. You can almost hear them tuning out this moment you start doing that. So I think as, as a rule of thumb, all outbound should be entirely focused on the customer and their challenges. Sure, you can add some context in there, give them like one line on what you do, but don't go too deep because they don't care until they know how it's going to impact them. Yeah, it's so funny. I, I find that in so much outreach, and, and this is me really putting on the buy side hat of where I've been for a couple of many years, few gray hairs. Um, let's just say it that way. <laughs> I don't want to date myself terribly. But you know, on the buy side, it, it really is people that love to sell too early all day, every day on every channel that you know is available. Why? Why do why are, why is this lesson so hard to learn? Yeah, I think we all did it at, at some point in our career. I know I did when I didn't know any better. You intuitively you think, okay, well, if I if I make my thing sound good enough, then they'll be interested in it, right? That's how you that's how you naturally assume you should be selling, and that's what you've been taught to sell in media. It's how we buy as consumers sometimes when we see something we really like, yeah. um, we can get bought into the features of it. But we need to know that businesses. If it's not broken, they're not going to be looking to fix it. And if they were, they might have called you. So when outbounding, when doing sales development, it's about identifying challenges for the prospect that they might be aware of or might not have even thought about yet based on symptoms that you can observe online. That's what I think personalization and being relevant and outreach is all about. And, and when you bring video to the table, you know, I, I think that then there's a, an even more natural line to talk about those challenges in a way that doesn't sound, I don't know, marketees, doesn't mm -hmm. sound kind of like 
anything other than just me talking to you. Isn't that a, a that's a feature, not a bug, right? <laughs> that's definitely a feature, yeah. And it's very human as well. It allows you to be emphatic. So when you're describing challenges, hey, like let's say, look, I looked in your LinkedIn profile, I saw your team's growing like crazy right now. You're hiring SDRs left, right, and center. And I'm selling something like at video, Vidyard, for example. Often when we see that, they hire a lot of people, but then those folks don't know how to get ramped quickly. Um, that's a challenge I've just highlighted. But I'm able to deliver that in a tone and in a way that that brings some emotion to the table. People don't realize that in B2B, yeah, a lot of logic comes into the table because it's a group buying decision, but you can use some emotion in there to make people feel, oh, yeah, you're right. Like We're bringing all these SDRs, but we don't know how to train them. Or bring on these SDRs, but our response rates are still stupid low. So even if we're doing all the right things, we're not getting enough responses. So like you can highlight problems and make them sound like problems, which is lost sometimes in an email. And sometimes you don't have the opportunity to in a cold call. Well, and, and don't you also have a, a greater sense of relatability? When, when somebody sees a video, it's automatically way more intimate. They see you, they hear you. And you know, to the extent that you can catch their attention, and again, Vidyard does a really nice job of giving you, well, how long did they play the video for? <laughs> you know, like so you actually are are well aware of your own kind of performance, aren't you? Yeah. Um, to, to that point. It does give you a little bit of insight of how much they watched. And that does, I don't think you can get that with a, obviously, cold call, you can hear when they stop, if you record it, you can hear when they stop being engaged. But an email, like you don't know where they stop reading. So that can be a really good way to improve and AB test and get better. One mistake I think when people do a video is like, okay, I'm going to give video a shot. So I'm listening to this in my right now and be like, oh, no, I haven't tried video in my outbound sequences yet. And then they go make five videos and they send them off and they might not convert and they think, well, I tried it. But I, I think if you tried to do that of cold calls, if you made five cold calls or sent five emails, you definitely wouldn't run write those methods off. And then what you often will find is if you do a lot of repetitions, you get better. And you get better by knowing, hey, where did I mess up in that video? Where did they stop listening? At what point did they tune out to what I was saying? Did I pitch? So it's a good way to get feedback there as well to improve what you do as you go. So that's a perfect kind of like segue into this idea of, you mentioned, you know, some people that, that, have a very shallow use case, if you will. They try it, they do five, they, uh, that didn't work. What are some of the other mistakes that when people are kind of like throwing their hands and heads around video for the first time that frankly, if they knew better, they could avoid? Mm. So we mentioned a couple already. Don't pitch. Don't try and do a mini demo. It's not what this is. Just make it about the customer. Don't do five and give up. Get some repetitions in there so you can get better. You only get that through repetition and doing things over and over again. That's how you learn anything. The third one, don't try and make it perfect. Uh, when I say get better, like I fell into the trap when I first started using video that I like wanted the video to be perfect. And what that meant was I just kept re-recording it over and over again. Sure <laughs> enough, it took me half an hour to send a 30-second video. So don't aim for perfection. Strive for like good, you know, and you'll naturally get better the more you do it. And so, so don't aim perfection. Don't try and re-record it too many times because then all the benefits that you get from video of being able to show off and you know, be be more emphatic, they're lost because you could have made fifty cold calls in the time that you did one video. So be efficient. Accept that your first few probably won't be that good. All those ums, ahs, and when you lose your train of thought, that's totally okay. It naturally happens in conversations like these, the one you and I are having right now. Yeah. People don't really pick up on it because it's human. Whereas if you do it fifty times and re-record it until it's perfect. You're going to sound like this. You're going to be like, uh, hey, hey, Eric, it's it's Will. I noticed this on LinkedIn. And you're going to lose all that emotion 
that you would have had if you had just accepted the first time uh, when you were still excited about it. Another one is making the videos too long. Best practice for me and what I strive to is about 30 to 40 seconds. So about the same amount of time it takes to read a prospecting email. So along the that second to last point that you were making, where you know you try it, don't be too perfect, and you're trying it maybe many times over, is that does that come about because people think like, oh, I I actually want to be like a newscaster? You know, the videos that I see and the rehearsed and the very I don't know. I guess best case scenario, and this is someone who used to be in TV news, but like, <laughs> you know, you do sound rehearsed or you do sound natural. You do sound like on camera. That can almost work against you, can't it? You don't sound like a normal person anymore. You yeah. sound like a newscaster. I think I think we're really self-critical and no one really likes to listen to recordings of themselves. So I think that can lead to a lot of people thinking, okay, I can do this better or that wasn't great. But in reality is like the first or second take is probably good enough. Shoot it off. Do 20 more videos and I bet by the 30th you'll be your first take will be amazing every time. That's really good advice. Don't be too self-critical, I think, is probably a big takeaway for folks that are, you know, kind of like again, getting their feet wet, getting started, getting used to this. Let's flip to the other side of the coin. Talk a little bit about some of the benefits that you've seen high performing. Mm-hmm maybe sales teams in general or SDR teams in particular that have adopted, say, Vidyard and now have a video program that really has taken wings. What are some of the things that they're seeing KPI-wise, deal flow-wise, conversationally? Response rates is the obvious first one, uh, obviously. If people open the video, then, then we get really high response rates to them because we know it's not what's made it. It's much harder to chew it out. Not only that, but when people do respond, you'll notice that they're a lot more energetic about it. Like people really appreciate getting a video. They're like, wow, that really stood out. We don't get those all the time. You'll get compliments on them, which means it's a great way to start off a sales cycle because then they're actually showing up at that first meeting excited. And yeah. like they already know the person potentially if it was an AE who sent it or an SDR who sent it, who maybe is doing a first call. So yeah, higher response rates, more engaged customers. I've also found it really helpful with enterprise accounts. When you're being really targeted, you don't want to miss that shot. And with video, you can bring in a really creative approach. So if I was... Uh, I'll give you an example, actually. Um, there's one on, there's a whole list of inspiration videos on Vidyard. And by the way, I'm, I'm all for video regardless of, of what platform you use. So it doesn't necessarily have to be Vidyard. But like, there's a, there was an example someone had where they were targeting Buffalo Wild Wings. So they recorded a video... And that's that would be, I guess, an enterprise account for a lot. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, because they were chain, right? And yeah. um, and they had a video, and they were eating the wild wings while they were doing the video, which is an amazing way to stand out. And that's that. You know what I was talking about earlier, where the video got sent around the whole company. That happened with them, got their attention, um, and and was a big reason that they uh, they booked the meeting and got like a lot of awareness. So you can get really, really, really creative with your very targeted accounts. Now, if someone's got a thousand or ten thousand or twenty thousand target accounts, then you're probably not going to want to eat hot wings for every single video. I don't think that's healthy. But at that start point, you can start scaling up and finding ways to be less creative while also being really emphatic in those videos and get people really excited when they do decide to take action on your on your touch point. That's so funny you mentioned that. One of the vignettes in Stu Heineke's book, future podcast guest for us too, How to Get a Meeting with Anyone, was literally a story of not Buffalo Wild Wings, but a very similar approach to some of the biggest chain restaurants in the world done by an app company that was trying to replace, you know, those silly um, plastic buzzers when you're waiting for a table that you have to like put in your pocket. The app 
company was trying to replace them and basically wanted to get the the eyes and ears of the C-suite of each one of these very large, in their world, whales. So they cut videos literally in the chain restaurants with mm. people fumbling around with the plastic pox and all the problems associated with it. Took those videos, had them edited down. So this is a little bit more intensive than your normal Vidyard approach. Mm-hmm. Put them onto iPads where the only thing on the iPad was basically the video. FedExed it to each one of those you know, oh, VIPs yeah. and made and basically got their videos watched. And of course, we're, we're very successful at scheduling the appointments that came with it downstream. That, that's, a, that's awesome. And like... Yeah, maybe it's not the, the classic video that you think of with the whiteboard and the wave, right? But that is just, you couldn't deliver that message in any way but video. Like you couldn't write that in an email, you couldn't put that in a book, you couldn't even photographs probably wouldn't do it. Video was the only way to communicate the message, which I think brings, you know, up the, the what you were talking about earlier, why video? Um, because you can communicate so much more with a video uh, than you could any other medium. Totally agree with that. So on that whiteboard wave, you know, that that brings up something that for those of us that have been, especially on the buy side and seen, you know, a lot of the prospecting tactics that have kind of come in and out of fashion yeah. over the years, you know, the whiteboard wave and the name on, on the grease board kind yeah. of thing feels a lot more commonplace here in 2022 yeah. than it did say, I don't know, three, four, five years ago. Mm-hmm. What what kind of reaction or what's your perspective on those types of things? Yeah. I mean, I, I might get some flack from some of the video team for this, but I really don't like the whiteboard wave. <laughs> it's a bit of a cliche at this point. And honestly, just as, as someone who's a bit dry humor and, and everything, I just find it a little bit cringy because I'm not that happy for a person. So I'm kind of pretending to be something I'm not. And, and, and the whole idea of the whiteboard and the wave is that you put a thumbnail in the video. So this is some more strategic tips because you want people to open the video because naturally people are going to be a bit distrusting. So you want to make sure it's, they know it's for them, which is why you write their name on a whiteboard, wave and smile. But that said, you're right. It's been overdone. So yeah, yeah. Um, there are some new ways you can do. I'm a really big fan of having that thumbnail begin on their LinkedIn profile or website. And then the copy text I put there is going to be some personalized to them as well. So they know for a certainty that video is for them. When I send it in an email and they see a thumbnail of your LinkedIn profile, they're going to need to click that because it's you, you. If you see someone a, a, a screen grab of your LinkedIn profile, you're going to want to know what someone's saying about you. So that that's my new the new whiteboard wave is start the video on the LinkedIn profile, make that the thumbnail that will naturally pique someone's curiosity about what you're going to say about them. The whiteboard wave can still work, but it's not me. So I'm a I'm a proponent of doing the uh, either the LinkedIn or on their website, or maybe even their CEO's uh, profile, or maybe one of their competitors. Maybe go to one of their competitors' websites that you work with and say, hey, I thought you should know we work with landscaping company A. I know you're their biggest competitor as landscaping company B. Just to, you know, that, 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 That's another way to get someone's attention. Just show them something relevant right from the bat um, and with that copy as well. It, it's kind of pithy, but it really breaks back to show me you know me. Mm. Doesn't it? I love that. Show me you know me. I mean, it's a pithy phrase, but it, it really packs a lot of punch because I think, you know, I think Dale Carnegie said this maybe a, close to a hundred years ago that interested is interesting. Mm. And most people that roam the earth, in my experience, care most about themselves before caring about anything else. <laughs> That's exactly why earlier on when we were talking about the prospecting thing, stop talking about yourself. They don't care until 
they know why they should care, which is something about them, not you. So right, yeah, right. yeah, I love yeah, that, that, makes, that quote. Um, what, what are what are some of those other kind of like time tested, mother approved basics that, especially in a in a video context where I think most people would rather get things more right than wrong because it doesn't scale nearly as linearly as other channels. Yeah. What are some of those other, again, like miss these like really best practices at your, <laughs> your peril? Yeah. So I don't like using video as a first step. There's a couple of reasons for that. Because of what you said, it doesn't scale quite as much as making calls and sending emails. It doesn't have to be that far behind. You can do it quite a bulk if you block your time effectively, which you should be doing for all of your activities because we suck at multitasking. But if I can get them without sending them a video, I've, I've saved myself a little bit of time there. So what I'll typically do in my sequences at least, um, and you know everyone's got something different and a different opinion when it comes to sequence order, et cetera. But I'll typically cold call someone. I'll leave them a voicemail and say, don't worry about responding to my cold call. Don't worry about calling me back. And then it's in your email. It's coming from will.akinandvidyard.com. They'll get that email, which is going to be personalized and relevant to them. And then I'll call them and then I'll probably connect on LinkedIn. And then I'll call them again. And then after that second call on like day four or five, the next step I do after that is going to be using that same email thread. And I'm just going to drop a video with a little bit of context, a little bit of personalization that I may have used in the first email. That is a great way because sending a video as a first step does run the risk sometimes if you've got too many links in your emails. And by the way, this applies to all links. So get rid of that calendar link in your email. No one's ever clicked on it, I promise. No one's <laughs> going to book a meeting with you in your calendar, in your in your email signature. Just get rid of all of them. So you, what you want to do is get that first email in their inbox. And then that second one, when you send a video, it won't go to spam because that's a big risk that a lot of people worry about, especially when you're selling to enterprise accounts who have very strict spam filters. So get rid yeah. of all the links in your first email. No one's booking time view. No one's clicking on your G2 reviews. I know marketing is going to be upset about this one, but clean up your signature, put your name and your number and your title. Don't even need your number. People probably aren't going to call you, but those are some things you can do just to make sure that first email gets delivered, which I think is a big challenge today across sales development is email deliverability. So don't do anything else to hurt yourself there. Get that first email in their inbox for sure. And then hit them with the one, two, the video comes five days later. That that's actually really smart advice. And I can see where that is evergreen too, especially because if you use the video in the second email wave and no earlier, you're forced to conceptualize this sequence actually having a structure and almost a narrative. Mm. Is that fair to say? Well, we're getting we we show them new stuff, right? Yeah. We, you heard me there. I, I mentioned Coco, voicemail, email, LinkedIn, LinkedIn comment, LinkedIn like, LinkedIn connection potentially a LinkedIn message and a video. In five days, we've hit them seven different ways. What we said at the start, you want to meet buyers where they're at. How do you do that? You give your best, you give yourself a good lot of shots at bat there. So one of those channels, hopefully, is the way the buyer is most most receptive to. So by doing that in the first, I like to call it like a little bit of a sprint in that first week. And then mm -hmm. from there, we'll probably go to, into more of a nurture system where we might call them once a week from there on. Got it. So you like basically compacting everything all up front and then kind of just moving off to a, a gentle nudge, touch, bump, whatever you want to call it thereafter. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of long sequences and I like to start them off heavy. I want them to know my name. That's a big one. I want them to build that familiarity with me very quickly, which is mm -hmm. why I'm a big proponent of social selling as well, getting content out there. Hopefully they, they can see some of your other stuff while you're at it. But then from there, I, that's five days and seven touches. From there, I'm probably going to be aiming two or three touches every week after that. 
And eventually I'm going to, I'm going to cut it and uh, move on to another prospect, maybe come back to them a few months later. Well, and I would imagine too, that do you find that you see more, I would guess a higher response rate in that first week of that type of, you know, like condensed sequence, but probably also a higher either unsub subscribe rate or not interested rate, or just kind of like opt out rate alongside. Yeah, you'll uh, you, you'll get through a lot of the prospects, yes or no's early, um, yeah. but you'll be surprised. Like sometimes touch twenty five is the one that gets them, and they come back. And it's it's funny because if you do it right and you make sure you every step is personalized, relevant, and leading with value, and not just pitch slapping people, you actually find that sometimes people apologize to you, like right, I'm so right. sorry, I haven't got back to you sooner, or like so one time I finished the sequence the next week, the prospect reached out to me and said, "Hey, well, you pinged me a bunch of times last month." wasn't right, but we're actually now looking into this. Like you've built that familiarity and you've not done anything that's like really salesy in there as well, because you've made sure you kept it all relevant and about them. Well, that's probably also why the breakup email still isn't dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 uh, yeah. Breakup emails is another divisive topic. I like to ask for feedback um, yeah. because people love to tell you what they think. So I'll just normally go like, Hey, like, like, it's been a while I've reached out to you. Um, I'm going to leave it off for now, but is there any feedback that I can take to, to be more relevant uh, to reaching out to you or, or any other prospects in the past? I'm always trying to get better because that's a really fair way to frame it. And they know you're not just like a like a really assumptive salesperson in that sense. And you're being vulnerable as well. So that's that's why I like to replace with a breakup email. We're covering a lot of different topics here, but yeah, I, I'm not, I think that's a, a great substitute for a breakup email, asking for feedback at the end of a sequence. Anyone that's thinking about sequences all the time, which is probably most people in our audience, <laughs> we're touching on topics that are probably very uh, near and dear to their hearts. You know, what's kind of interesting to me too about that ask for feedback, and I think that's a great tip, by the way, and people should copy that immediately. If I never have to see another breakup email again, it would be too soon. But it really also connects back to kind of like how this all started, the show me, you know me concept, doesn't it? Uh, pan interrupting in a way, just just not being... Like I've found success in sales from not doing the same thing that all the other salespeople or what the prospect assumes you're going to do as a salesperson because they're used to being pitched up, because they're used to being spammed, because they're used to people talking about themselves, because they're used to people breaking up them in the last step. If you do something just different to everyone else at every single step, you're going to have a lot more success in sales. A lot of it is just being different. So um, yeah, showing, showing, making it about the customer instead of you. And, and showing them that you've done your research and you care about their problems and that you're more of a problem-focused uh, seller than a, than a product-focused seller. By the way, isn't that also answering the question that's the unasked one inside the mind of any prospect who might be curious about a given brand, product, value prop, is differentiation really comes from the actions that one takes to differentiate their company, doesn't it? Yeah, I've sold number two products for the same price as that. Okay, so if if buyers only cared about the product, then they would just buy the number one in the space every single time, right? Yeah, I've sold the number two product for pretty much my whole career. Video is probably the first time I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> I had a very successful career selling the number two product for the same price as the number one product with less features because throughout the sales process. The buyer appreciated my approach more than that they did the, the the seller on number one, because I had to make it about them. I couldn't win by talking about myself because my product wasn't as good. So if I didn't make it about them and their goals and their challenges and ask them questions, 
then they they uh, they would have just gone with the best product. Um, That's so funny you mentioned that because as a marketer and multiple time CMO, if you will, one of the frankly best ad campaigns that and and I'm again dating myself terribly here, but one of the best ad campaigns that I think I've ever seen in my entire lifetime was Avis Renicar, who wasn't number one in the market, wanted to achieve back when advertising really had a much bigger role to play, if you will. And their entire slogan for years, decades was Avis, we're number two. We try harder. Yeah. Right. That's so and good. It's so good because all of a sudden, like that translates immediately into like, well, why why I would care to engage with Avis. Yeah. And um that's so true as well. Like I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. It's it's a little bit more closing focused than sales development focused. But while selling to the number two company in the uh, proposal software space, our biggest competitor was PandaDoc. I worked for Proposify. What I used to do at the last stage when the, the buyer was going, I'm not sure who to go with. I'd go, I'd go slack my CEO, who I had line of sight off with because I, it was a slightly smaller company. I'd say, hey, can you create a video for me and send it to these, these, these people saying, hey, we're really excited to bring you on. Will's told me all this. Because I knew that my counterpart, whoever the AE at PandaDoc was, 100% could not just slack their CEO because Panadoc's a 500-person unicorn, whereas Proposify is an 80-person you know, startup based out of Nova Scotia, Canada. I had that ability and I used that to my advantage because we were smaller, we could be more agile. And the customer often was like, wow, you showed up. Like My business is obviously really important to you. Gives them that warm, fuzzy feeling. So yeah, uh, if you are selling for a number two, three, four, five, six in your space, use that to your advantage. Work harder, be better than the seller at number one. What a great story. And by the way, when and if he listens to this, Makita Mikado, CEO of PandaDoc, you can take advantage of that realization. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. He's going to be like on Slack now. Like, do you want me to send a video? Do you want me? Um, I didn't even know who the CEO of PandaDoc was, but um, I do love PandaDoc. Now that I don't work at a competitor, you get some of those goggles, um, but I, I love the team there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, another great. It, it's so funny. We we just had Jed Marley on a recent podcast who, you know, heads up sales development at Panadoc. And he's uh he had just a, a wonderful list of great insights for other SDA managers out in the world to kind of like check themselves. So good to hear of this competitive differentiation in space between Proposify and, and Panadoc. That's so funny. I, I'd always assumed that the the eight hundred pound gorilla in that industry was basically DocuSign. They would definitely be the big the big one in the e-sign space. But, but proposals, proposals, and and contract management is a bit more like it's a different set of pain points. So e-sign, like oh, we want our customers to be able to electronically sign our documents and speed up the sales cycle. Whereas proposals is more about we want to control our brand and content, put some guardrails in place, um, or our reps are spending way too long putting these things together or they're sending the outdate version. So it's a slightly different set of pain points. Panadoc definitely competed with DocuSign more as an e-signature platform, whereas Proposify just wasn't... It was better geared to people who are already using an e-sign platform and having problems with it. That's who we used to target for the most part. And so that actually raises kind of an interesting like adjacent question, which is if I'm thinking about go-to-market and I'm thinking about the ways in which... I want to start a conversation with people that don't know my brand, that aren't exposed to it, that don't have, again, that kind of almost like what you just said with Vidyard at the opening of this, this conversation, where 
it's not the Kleenex of tissues. You know what I mean? Like where people use it interchangeably as a verb. How should people be thinking about their go-to-market, especially for non-big brands? I've, I think you've got a, you've got a, it's a common theme throughout this whole episode, right? This whole recording, but you've got to think about the customer and how you're going to solve their problem slightly differently. I don't think it's a smart move to just be like, oh, we're them, but smaller. You've got to try and think of differentiators that you can identify. And um, mm-hmm. this was a challenge that we actually had a lot because we weren't that different from Van Dock. And we, the, the product was moving that direction to try and be something else. But when you are just the, the same, the V2 of it or whatever it is, that can be a real challenge. But what you should try and do at the start, even if your product isn't different, then your positioning could be. Yeah. So your product may be the exact same, but they may be like, hey, like Pandoc always like, we speed up the proposal process. We save you lots of time. Whereas what we tried to do at Proposify, even though our products were very similar in, in feature parodies, we would say, well, sure, we will speed things up, but we're going to help you get more control over your, your, your documents. So we would, the products did the same thing, but we were like, we were approaching it and, and positioning ourselves in two different ways. So if you can't change, make your product slightly different and make it address a different market or set of problems, then make your positioning different, position yourself differently. Say, hey, we help with control and visibility while they help with efficiency. And just saying that will sometimes make customers think, well, which one do I care about more? Saving five minutes or making sure that my my rep doesn't send out a, a document from 2016. So think of ways you can position yourself differently to attack the uh, this, the the problems that your prospects might be facing. Well, and if you wrap it in a product or a prospect blanket, which again I think is the theme of of this episode, ultimately you could probably be asking a lot more killer questions to get people thinking about those different types of things. Like like maybe even in your example just then and there, you ever sent out a contract that was kind of like dated and not really reflective of your current <laughs> product offering before? Mm-hmm. Pretty good chance that the, the answer to that is yep. Mm-hmm. How often does that happen? Oh, probably three times a month. Wow. What's the pro- what's the difference is that? Uh, well, our pricing was different. How different? 20% less. Wow. So you're losing 20. What's your annual what's your annual sales goal? And then you're like three times a month, 20%. You can start doing some math, and then you've got a big gaping hole that you can now address and that 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 and help that prospect with, right? It's discovery. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, you could do the same thing with time though, right? You'd be like, how long are your reps sending, the, taking to do a proposal? Two hours. Wow. A, a, a rep with a $500,000 a year quota, that their time is worth $500 an hour if you work at their opportunity cost. So that's $1,000 for per proposal. How long would you like it to take? We want it to take five minutes. Okay. So for every rep you've got, you're going to be saving like $900 a month and you've got 100 reps. And then it's the same similar stories. You can take them down both those angles, right? If those two reps are coming down them and you've identified the bigger hole, that puts you in a different different bucket and a different con- consultative space to your competitor, even if your product's similar. It really seems like one of the things that that you would be a, a big fan of or are espousing right now is, hey, how can to use your word from earlier, ch- how can I help my customers understand their challenges better? contextualize them, maybe even synthesize some of that information down into what that's costing me. Mm-hmm. If I don't, if I don't fully appreciate that going forward, what's your take on taking a lot of that information or what you've learned, having a variety of customers that all have similar problems and moving it all the way up to the top of a, any kind of outbound or direct response type of outreach? 
I think you, you can you can fall into the trap of being too assumptive, right? So you don't want to just assume people have these problems, but you can talk about the symptoms of those problems. Oh, like you can talk about the things that that might be happening that court that, that that are resolved those problems, and then when someone puts their hand up, that's a job for a really good conversation because you already know often what those things will be causing a meaning, right? And then yeah. you've got a really nice discovery session out there that makes opens you up to say, hey, we've got the solution for that. So in the case of we might be losing money because we're sending out date contracts. Well, that could be one of the points I can make in my video. Hey, look, when we see teams grow and they hire 20 new people, all 20 of those people don't know where to go and find the most up-to-date version of your proposal. How are you solving that challenge right now? And then when we go on a call and they've said, yeah, that's relevant to me. You're right. We, we haven't got any process in place to make sure people are using the most up-to-date version of our document. That then opens you up to say, okay, what, could, what are the risks? What, what has that happened in the past? Can you give me an example of when this happened? How often does it happen? So yeah, I've been thinking more about like, what can you find out about the prospect online and how can you tie that to one of the problems or challenges that you solve? So if they're hiring, they're probably losing control of the documents. Let's give you a different example. If you're selling a HR software, or I'll tell you what, if you're selling a finance software and you can see that a customer has a new office in Australia, how are they making sure that they're paying everyone in Australia the right amount of money and that's balancing on the on the books on the US side? Like all of these symptoms that you can identify online, you can try and tie that to a challenge that you solve um, and make it more about the focus on them and it's relevant to them because you've done your research. Well, for those listening, these are very subtle but super deep insights. The ability to kind of address the symptoms in the way that you're talking about are actually very attractive models for getting people to essentially self-identify, raise their hands and say, yeah, I want to talk more about this. I don't want to talk with anyone who hasn't got a problem I can solve, right? Yeah. <laughs> like if you can qualify a little bit in your messaging, that's going to mean that you get more people showing up. And when they do show up, that's going to be a result in a qualified opportunity, which could result in a sale. So um, if you if you if you do like I've fell into the trap before where my messaging was really good, but the video was really funny or humorous, or someone just took a meeting because they really liked my outreach. Mm. Then we got on the phone and they're like, oh no, we've already got this covered. So if I can try and tease something out in the prospecting. It's one going to mean more hand raises, but two, those those mean is going to probably be a lot more qualified than just good messaging, as they call it. It's so funny because qualification always has a bad rap in kind of like top of the funnel type of activities. To the to the extent that if I do feel like as a as a would be buyer that I'm being qualified, especially Bant. Oh my gosh, oh, yeah. do you have the authority. Like, do, oh, gosh, do you no. have the authority to make? To make this decision, like, good luck trying to get anyone forward after like that that type of uh, interaction. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's two ways to look at qualification. I think there's like, oh, these are the list of things that you need to do to warrant a conversation with me, which is a really anti-buyer model and makes yeah. people a gross taste in your mouth. If someone did that to me, I'd be very upset. When I talk about qualified, like, I'm thinking like, is this someone that we can help? It's still right, about right. them, and I don't care if there's the specialist who's nine levels away from the decision maker. If it's a big problem, well, they're qualified. If they've got a problem that we can solve, then they're going to get me to their boss. I'm going to work that deal. That's my job as an account executive to work that deal and get to the person who cares the most about the problem. So uh, frankly, I don't care who I'm talking to. I don't care if they have a timeline or a budget. What I want is someone who has a problem that we, my solution, my company is equipped to solve. And it has to be a problem that matters to them and the company. Boy, I could not have said that any better myself. That is really sound advice, rock solid, if you will. And and frankly, companies that don't heed that exact kind of model really run into trouble. 
you know, on all different fronts, because again, what is the point of doing any prospecting whatsoever, if not to just open up a sale, a sales opportunity? Like if that doesn't exist, like why do it? Exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, I, in the real world though, we don't see that often. It's funny. Like, you know, the, the ability I find, sorry, sales, I'm going to, paint with a very broad brush. But a lot of times I've worked with many salespeople and throughout my career that love to just kind of wait around to take orders. You know, they just want to sign up for people that are in market buyers waiting for a solution just like yours so they can show up and present them with a contract and call it a job well done. Those are nice. Don't get me wrong. It's nice to get a freebie every now and again. Sure. But if you're in that position, you're you're, you're, put, you're, you're putting a lot of uh, faith in your employer to keep you around. If you're only taking orders, then like, watch out because your job might get replaced by marketing very soon. Because if, if that buyer is ready to buy and that's something people you want to talk to, they're going to want it. They'd rather just not talk to you altogether. People don't always necessarily want to talk to a salesperson if they can avoid it and they certainly want to buy the product. They've done that research. They'll try and buy. They'll self serve. Yeah. Or like your company will try and find a way to get them to self serve because they reduce headcount. They'd have to pay commissions out. So if you're not being consultative and focusing the problems and helping customers understand their business better, then you're, you're putting yourself at risk, especially these days. Like, There's a lot of word out on the street, the market, the, the sellers who are order takers, they're, they're, they're people who are they're taking a risk on their career by not, being, by not uh, going to bat on more opportunities where the prospect may not be ready to buy, who may need a bit of education, may, you may need to do some probing and discovery with to actually move things along somewhat. Well, and I also find that that one of the next phases, and I hope this is truly where we're headed, um, because it, it definitely isn't where we've come from. You know, if you look at the the trend lines around buying groups, they're all getting bigger. Doesn't matter the company, mm. but the consensus sale is real, <laughs> and more people are coming to the party, right? Like more people are part of that consensus. Trend line number one: unassailable. Every study, every buy cycle I've ever examined, like. It's just more true today than it ever has been before. Number two, we have more access to information than we've ever had ever in the history of like the world mm. to buy anything. Um, that said, I would argue that that information glut produces actually probably worse decisions because it's harder to buy than it is to sell. And consuming tons and tons of information is just an overwhelming type of experience. So what this is leading towards, I think, for sellers the world over is how do I become a synthesizer? How do I become the person that makes that information palatable, Mm -hmm. positions it in the way that I would want my client to potentially see the world, a perspective, might be a fresh one, a new one, could be a self-serving one, right? Like we don't work without bias, but ultimately, the more I can synthesize and bring new and new and valuable information to any sales interaction, the more valuable I become, right? I, I think you're, 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 you're explaining exactly why sales development has to exist. It's the purpose of it all. Because the way you do that is get there earlier. If, you've, if they've already done all that research, they've already overwhelmed themselves, they're already picking suppliers by the time you've reached out to them, or by the time they've reached out to you, should you, you're now in a, they're not as receptive because they've already absorbed all this information from other salespeople from online, from wherever. They're just not as receptive to that. If you can get them, so I look at it as this typically, a company will be facing a problem. They'll recognize and agree on what problem they're facing. 
They'll then decide on a solution and then they'll go find a supplier. If you're only getting involved in that last step, you're just, you are just an order taker. Like they're just choosing people at that point and you're trying to be the best choice. Whereas if you can prospect someone while they're still figuring out their problem and help them with that, well, then you can be a consultant for them all the way through to the end there. Right. They may still go look at a couple of other suppliers, but you're the person who's educated them, who's given us all this valuable information, who's directed them, made sure, no, like, there's a lot of noise out there. This is what's important based on your problems. You're then becoming more of a consultant than a cashier. So, <laughs> I love that. so, so that's why you need to be prospecting people. You need to get to them before they're already choosing suppliers and comparing you and doing these feature things where they go like, you have 10 features and they have 12. So we're going to pick 12. And why should we pick you? Like that's a trap that you can fall into. And it's not, it's not a fun one to be part of unless you have the best product, in which case you probably win a lot of those. But that's why you want to get someone early. You want to get to them before they're already doing that while they're still figuring out their problems or when they're still trying to figure out a solution to those problems while they're still trying to figure that all internally. And then you can, uh, you can find someone in the organization who's going to help you out and get those other 27 stakeholders bought in on, on the fact that you're the solution to the problem that they may have just recognized or before they've even recognized it. Boy, there's something about bringing people to their own aha moments that is such a, a powerful truth, isn't it? Yeah. And you, you never get there by telling someone something. Yeah. People, those aha moments, whenever I've been coached by a manager, and my manager's never been like, well, this is the way to do it. They've asked me enough questions. And I'm like the, the, the cogs start turning. I'm like, ding. Oh, I finally get it because they asked me a few questions and helped me get to the answer myself. And therefore, that's, that's how you learn. So that's why uh, folks in the bio ask them some questions. Don't just tell them. Don't, don't bark orders or be really assumptive about them. You can often ask people some questions and they'll figure out themselves if you ask the right questions. Love that. Well, and, and the quotable consultants, not cashiers. I love that I'm stealing it from you <laughs> going forward. <laughs> the first time I said it. So uh, yeah, I don't know if I read that somewhere. No, I don't think I did. Uh, <laughs> it's original and it's yours. Sure. So <laughs> I love it. Well, this has been one heck of a fun conversation for me. Uh, to have, and, and I hope for our listeners as well. Tell people where they can learn more, either about some of the videos that you're creating, the content that is um, kind of near and dear to your heart, and or how to connect with you. Yeah. So I currently work under SalesBeed, which is a branch of Vidyard, where we've created a sales media brand for salespeople to entertain and educate. I'm the lead there. So my name is Will Aitken. Find me on LinkedIn and uh, check out SalesBeed while you're at it. I'm in, I, I feature heavily uh, in writing and creating a lot of that content as well. And it's all good stuff. That's great. Right. Well, been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. It's been awesome. We went on a real journey. We started video and we ended up in uh, cashiers and uh, consultants. I love it. <laughs> Full circle. Appreciate Thanks again. It.